Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Adam Parker. What a fascinating career. Uh, Top-ranked institutional analyst, semiconductor analyst, head of research at Sanford Bernstein, head of U.S. equities at Morgan Stanley. Really a masterclass in how to think about creating frameworks for investing, for thinking about how to apply quantitative research along with macro and fundamental data uh, in order to create a differentiated research product. Just absolutely a master class in thinking about stocks and thinking about sectors and thinking about where is the crowd wrong and how to come up with a um, very outlier perspective, uh, many of which have been giant moneymakers and really uh, fascinating market calls. Uh, I found this conversation to be brilliant and insightful, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my conversation with Trivariate Researchers, Adam Parker. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Adam Parker. He is the founder of Trivariate Research. Previously, he was Global Director of Research and U.S. Equity Strategist at Sanford C. Bernstein. He was the number one institutional investor ranked analyst in semiconductors before he became Morgan Stanley's Chief U.S. Equity Strategist and Director of Global Quant Research. Adam Parker, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Uh, I've been looking forward to having this conversation for a while, and I, I have to start with your very interesting academic background. You have three degrees in stats, uh, not just undergraduate at Michigan, but a PhD from Boston University. And in the middle, you got a master's in biostatistics at UNC Chapel Hill. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, back then, statistics wasn't as cool as it is now, Barry. So <laughs> I didn't know 30 years ago it was going to turn into the all the rage and that everyone was going to kind of want to major in you know, data science and analytics. It just, I was always more of a math guy and I liked having problem sets and then going and playing sports and I didn't want to have to read Chaucer or whatever all the other miserable people were doing. So it kind of motivated me to be a little bit more analytical. So, so, but the question that raises biostatistics is, were you always planning on a career in finance or was that? You know, that was more, um, the biostatistics department was in the School of Public Health at UNC uh -huh. and, and it's really, you know, applied statistics, applied yeah. that, at that age to uh, mostly medical data. But it was more about learning analytics 
and you know programming and um, and you I can think, apply it to anything. Yeah, you can apply it to anything. So like my, my PhD thesis was about missing data um, in a healthcare setting, but as you know, missing data exists everywhere, including in finance. So it sure. turned out to be pretty applicable. So how frustrating is it to you to to see either newspaper headlines or social media where people just lack a rudimentary understanding of basic statistics and probability? You know, I think the big challenge is, is as you know, because you're good at this, is taking things that are somewhat complicated and then making them sound like they're simple and explaining them to everybody. I think the average um, intellect of, of people watching and reading mainstream media is still in the junior high or right. early high school level. So that's what you've got to resonate with. And I romanticize the investment community is slightly above that, but it probably is less above that than you think. Right. So so I love, we'll talk about Trivariate <laughs> yeah. a little later. I love the name. Yeah. I, I wrote a Bloomberg column years ago, um, single variable analysis is for suckers or something <laughs> like that. And so I have to talk to you about sure, that name. Sure, of course. But, but let's... With all that stat background, how did you get to Sanford C. Bernstein? You know, in those days, um, you know, when I finished my PhD um, in the late 90s. I, you know, I had some buddies that seemed to be getting rich on Wall Street, <laughs> and, and I didn't really know what they were doing. And one of my best friends worked at Sanford Bernstein, and, and uh, they were looking for somebody to write, um, you know, software and do analysis um, called quant research on equities. And I interviewed there, and I loved it. This bunch of crazy, you know, wild people who were brilliant and um, kind of a little bit little bit on the edge of being unhinged as human beings and it was just kind of my jam you know and so um you're so buttoned up you don't sound like a a a crazy but it was it was effort and enthusiasm right just like getting the phd barry it's basically 99 percent perseverance one percent intelligence and this was like you get in there and there was just no rules like find something interesting and write about it and so for me you know there's this database of you know information on hundreds of stocks and you could go in there and analyze it and reach conclusions oh you know long the top market cap name it's these against it or do this or you know just kind of empirically test everything and there was a bunch of incredibly brilliant people there so i i loved it um i loved the environment and i didn't i didn't even know what i was getting into to be honest with you <laughs> and then from quant work at bernstein were you were you an analyst in yeah, semis there also? yeah so i switched to being semi look at that time big late 90s into the you know tmt bubble what seemed cool to young young adam parker was uh being an analyst oh man these tech analysts they they seem that seems sure. like a great job and bernstein in those days you know you were really an expert you wrote you know 100 100 200 page black book it was called on an industry and you you could tear apart the PLs of the companies and you really understood um you know we spent all our time on six to ten stocks so you really knew those companies the management teams the things that impacted the volatility of the PL. You you kind of became an expert and so i really wanted to do that and i just got lucky that it was semiconductors um i basically just kept going in saying i, I want to do this i want to do this and the first sector they offered me barry was um european electric utilities oh that sounds like and, so much fun yeah and i i i really struggled with how i'm going to communicate to them i'm really on board with the fact that you you you're allowing me to be an analyst but i <laughs> can't move to London. Yeah, that's it. I, I can't move to London. I just I just got engaged or whatever. So I, I enabled to sort of convince them, yes, thank you. I'm an analyst, but no, I'll wait for the first US one. And it, it could have been anything. It could have been food. It could have been, I didn't really care. And when semiconductors So you have, out, you didn't have a tech background. You no. didn't have an engineering because a lot of the analysts All of them covering did. semis, yeah. they're, they're electrical Circuit engineers. Circuit designers from Intel. Right. Yeah, they're exactly. computer software designers. I used to, you know, and, and Bernstein's hiring model back then was basically get a, a McKinsey guy who was an expert in the industry or somebody who worked at one of those companies. I was one of the rare counterexamples of 
you know, um, promote I think, from within. Yeah, yeah, I think the PhD in statistics probably helped me. I used to just say, look, I'm probably better at counting the chips than knowing what they are. You know, and and it turned out that in those days, what really mattered to getting the stocks right was sort of a a non-consensus and correct view of the gross margin six months forward. Mm -hmm. And so that didn't really require the expertise on circuit design and, and the like. In fact, you know this, but sometimes those the people who worked at the companies turn out to be not very good at calling the stock price of the own company they worked at because you have all kinds of biases from sure. the people you like and you don't like and that kind of stuff. So um, it worked to my advantage, but I think probably wouldn't have happened if I didn't labor through that PhD. So how do you get from Bernstein to Morgan Stanley? Yeah, so after I did semis uh, for a few years, and you know you, that's a very competitive you know business. You get up every day. There's a there's a there's a person at at, at Merrill and a person at you know uh, um, everywhere. You be everywhere. Uh, you wake the up and they're your competitors. You want to like just you want to make them look stupid on the conference calls, and you want to ask the smartest <laughs> question, and you want to be number one ranked, right? So you do that, and you know very you know once you get number one a few times, all you think about is like, am I going to lose it? There's no joy in repeating as number one. Huh. There's only the fear of losing it, right? Because then you're like, wait a minute, like investors don't like me. As much right. as I used to. So, you know, I, I felt like I wasn't really incrementally, you know, doing that again wasn't going to drive me anymore. And, um, you know, I was offered, um, you know, this position to run research at Bernstein. And so I transitioned to be the director of research for a while, which was attracting, retaining, hiring, firing, that kind of stuff. It's a management position, not yeah. a research position. Yeah, it got position. me away from that. But the beautiful for a year, but the beautiful part was I then was helping other analysts ramp. And so I got to learn, okay, I'm going to launch the household products guy. I'm going to launch um, the uh, capital equipment guy, industrial. And so in that year, I was helping kind of four or five analysts ramp. I started realizing, like, this is kind of interesting. I am kind of I can apply what I know at semis and help them. And so early in 08, very beginning of uh, 08, the strategy and quant research job opened up at Bernstein. And that's how I transitioned to being a little bit more, quote, unquote, macro. So uh, I did that for a couple of years. And then I transitioned to Morgan Stanley to be the strategist there. And, and for people who may not remember this, in the 90s, Bernstein, uh bevy of analysts were top top ranked. So in 07 when I was a director of research at Bernstein, the, you know, the, these are the data. Um, Bernstein had 23 U.S. analysts that were publishing. 18 were ranked in the top three, and 11 were number one. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So it was really a number one machine um, in terms of the analysts um, th that worked there. And you know, I, I you know, it was my job was get the five that weren't in in the top three in the top three and hire a few more that will eventually be you know, number one in the future, you know, and, and then that was in the U.S. And we also were building a, a European business, too. So so obvious, obvious after the fact question, Bernstein was substantial in size, but they weren't, you know, Goldman Sachs, or Morgan no. Stanley, Merrill Lynch. What was the secret of success? Why were they punching so far outside well, of their weight I think, class? I think there, you know, um, it was the it was multiple things, but I'd say you know you don't have a prime brokerage business, you don't have a banking business, so there was this perception of independence. You hired people who were, you know, generally were you know experts in the industry. I was an exception, but there were generally people who were running the McKinsey practice, consulting the aerospace companies, and they would be hired to cover Boeing or those kind of mm -hmm. things. So, kind of the industry knowledge, and I think the buy side, you know, relied on that as sort of a, a you know an external. Voice when you interview the buy side, they they tend to not care if the sell side are good stock pickers or not. They might blame them if they're bad, but they're never going to say, "Oh, I rely on the sell side for their stock selection skills." That's what they're supposed to be doing. So I think what helped Bernstein gain prominence was the fact that all right, we don't even try to do that at an expert level. Just try to help people be smarter about the investment countries and controversies and write detailed, um, you know, sensible issues on those investment controversies. So, so that that was that was the business model, and it, it really worked back through and you know at least you know until maybe ten years ago. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. 
you need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So, so let, you raised such a fascinating question I want to ask you about, and we're recording this um, late April after Netflix, mm-hmm. which had fallen 50% from its October peak um, at their uh, earnings call. They announced a decrease in subscribers. The stock falls another I don't know, 27% overnight. The next day, there are all these downgrades from the major right. uh, sell-side shops. Cut, cut to neutral, cut to hold, cut to – and it raises the question, and I, I'm sure lay people ask this question to themselves all the time. Hey, the stock is now down 75% from where you told me to buy it. What's the point of this downgrade? Thanks for nothing. Yeah, I mean, the sell side um, – Defend the entire analyst you know, community. We, go. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I – when I got to Morgan Stanley in, uh, I'll answer it this way. When I got to Morgan Stanley in the, in the late fall of 2010, I wondered if the research department there generated any alpha with the recommendations. Mm-hmm. And so I analyzed, they had stored data from 03 to 10. There was about 3,500 stock recommendations that were kind of stored. So, you know, you, I, I let the statistician yeah. loose on the data. Yeah. And so what'd you I find? Th- about half were overweight rated, half were equal and underweight. So I thought, all right, did the overweights beat the equal and underweights? 
your exact question I considered. So I didn't stocks down 25% in the aftermarket and then they downgrade it. You do not give them credit for that being a correct right, call. You, right. lag, you lag it by 24 hours. You beta adjust it, meaning you know, adjust for how much First the, market the market moved. And it turned out, at least for the 3,500 observations over seven years, that they had about 4% average um, alpha between the overweights and equal and underweights. So I, I published that as a bar, 4%. So in other words, the stocks they liked did 4% better, better than the stocks yeah, they, didn't they didn't like. like. And then, but how did it do versus so then, basic indexing? Yeah, well, that was kind of a new market neutral, right? So like you overweight longs and you're short the equal and underweights. And then, and then I had a quant model that, you know, the long top quintile beat the bottom by 9%. So I sort of said, look, I think quantitative stuff probably, you know, is a little bit better than fundamental stuff. But then, the, but then the last bar was 13%, which was if you only bought the overweight rated stocks that the model liked and you only sort of shorted the equal and underweights that the model didn't like, you'd get 13. So the whole point of this was a combination of something quantitative and maybe uh, unemotional combined with the fundamentals would be superior to either discipline alone. And actually, I've spent most of the, my life since then, you know, the last 12 years in that sort of combination sphere. So I think I'm trying to defend it by saying, look, I think there's some value in it uh, for sure, but there's not value in changing the recommendation after it's happened. My own personal opinion on Netflix, and I'm not a fundamental analyst there, but I did write about it, Barry. It's interesting. Uh -huh. um, I've had two learning lessons of, uh, that this one applied to. One, when things change, you have to admit it. And this one, I think, has both macro and micro changes. I think the macro would be, you know, everyone bought too many streaming services during COVID and maybe doesn't right. need as many. And now they're out of their house again. Right. And so it's reopening. And the, and, and the micro is they've got to think about pricing and maybe charging people to or not charging them versus for advertisement. So that's kind of a, a, a business model change. And the other thing, so maybe you have to say to yourself, well, it's not exactly the same fundamentally. Maybe, you know, sometimes I guess I'd answer your question by saying, sometimes the stock's down 25, but the fundamentals are t worse than 25%. Right. Right. And that, maybe not in this case, but I'm saying in aggregate. And the second learning lesson I've had from analyzing a lot of behavior on the short selling side and running my own fund is, you make more money shorting stocks down from highs than you do at highs. Right. So it's very tough to short stock at a high because you're fighting positive price momentum. Don't before. fight the tape. Right. So when the stock's down 20% and then you short it, I guarantee you make more money shorting stocks down 20 from highs than you do at highs. So it, it, it's not necessarily true that Netflix isn't a short here, um, but I'm, I'm not a fundamental analyst. In, in that, really but I'd say in that case, I'm not convinced that... It isn't worse. It still and trades at 100 times forward free cash flow. It's got a high correlation to low quality and work from home. It's got a high correlation to a negative correlation to inflation. So I don't know if growth, you know, stocks like that are going to work. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know the fundamentals. That and well, and one of one of my favorite things about having you, who is an independent research shop, instead of a sell side analyst, I'm not getting a phone call tomorrow from the PR person begging me to. Take everything Adam said out about Netflix. No, he can't, zero, he zero, can't talk about that. Zero, zero you chance. can talk. You go yeah. anywhere. You could talk about anything. That's right, without restriction. So I, that leads to another question: How freeing is that that you can actually say what's on your mind, and you're not thinking about what? Obviously, legal is important, For, but sometimes compliance gets a little over enthusiastic, and PR I, even more so. I, I would say, you, you know, I should look this up. So this this is an exaggeration, but. I would Look say you hedging. Already. I would say I maybe ten years ago 
when I worked at Morgan Stanley, um, I think there was 50,000 employees and 10,000 in legal and compliance and 10,000 in IT. So <laughs> that, that those are slight exaggerations. Yeah, it's um, some, but that's something like that. <laughs> so look, these are amazing firms, and Morgan Stanley is an incredible firm with great people and a lot of whom I'm close with. But what I'd say is that there's positive and negative. The big firms have bigness disease, and the taxes on your time become substantial, right? You know, you need a bunch of, of videos to money laundering and a bunch of, you know, every firm has this, you know, right. the, you know compliance stuff. You got a bunch of... Um, 360 feedback, MD and ED promotion, ESG, diversity and inclusion. The number of things you have to do just to- Time to, tax is a great the way time to tax, Yeah, it's a huge tax. And so yeah. for me, you know, it's very freeing. We're not a broker dealer. Our whole job is to write, you know, in, interesting research that makes people think. We sell data. We, you know, create baskets. We do a lot of outsourced sort of chief, chief risk officer work where people, we sign non-disclosure agreements. People send us their portfolios and we, we kind of analyze them and try to give them some interesting thoughts about it that aren't in, you know, axioma or, you know, things they can get from other, other vendors. So um, it, it's really freeing. It's it's really freeing. But you know you you don't have the resources. Um, you don't get uh, first class to uh, you know you know Beijing uh, <laughs> either. So there's some positives and negatives. Wait, you're flying commercial? What? <laughs> Come on! I always always fly commercial, <laughs> man. <laughs> so let's talk semis. They've been driving everything from the shortage of automobiles to inflation. Mm -hmm. Give us the broad overview from your perspective. Yeah. Well, you know one of the things that is tricky when you're an investor, Barry, is you know what what is cyclical and what's structural and you know you can confuse yourself when something's cyclical and you think it isn't and when the periodicity changes and those kind of things so uh semi I love I love all this mathy talk you yeah amplitude super... periodicity oh, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm so excited I'm back <laughs> back in college you know I think what you said is right though that they're kind of an important barometer um for a lot of broader issues the two things that I'm tracking right now really carefully are a concept called book to bill Mm -hmm. which is sort of how much revenue did you ship out versus what does your order flow look like and is, is the order high, order flow higher than you shipped out, book-to-bill ratio. Generally, that's still above one for most semiconductor companies, meaning future demand looks a little bit better than trailing demand. But that book-to-bill ratio has come down from maybe 1.15 to 1.08 to 1.06. So come down due to the supply as coming As we finally line? get you know supply catching up you know post-COVID. Um, so you, I think when that... If you think about it, it's a weird way to think about it, but there's probably only one second where production equals consumption, and then you're either about to start overproducing consumption or you know you're about to start underproducing. So I think we'll get to equilibrium in the second half of this year in most, really? most parts of the semiconductors. Wow, that's that would be a huge yeah. huge windfall for the supply, anybody who the wants to go out and buy cars. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think the second thing that's important related to that is, is backlog. So. You know, one of the things that I think Bernstein was good about and, and I and is is making you think like you're the CEO as an analyst. So think like you're CEO, you know, step in, you know, you know kind of step into the thought process that you're running the company. So if you're the CEO of any industrial company, auto, uh, home appliance, any real business, you've had trouble selling product in the last yeah. 18 months because you couldn't get the supplies you need. So you go to your procurement officer and you say, yo. Uh, how about stop bottlenecking my final revenue? So what does that person do? It calls the semiconductor supply chain. It says, I want 200 million 18 months from now. I want 200 million 12 months from now. And by the way, I want 200 million 24 months from now. And you start piling on the backlog so that they know, hey, I'm going to be Ramp there. I'm going to be there for a while. Ramp right. it up, right? And so that has some interesting contagion in the economy, right? Because these guys start planning their backlog, back, um, you know, their capacity as if that backlog is going to be there. One of the very weird parts about the semiconductor industry that I don't think everyone understands is there's zero penalty for backlog cancellation. So you I was and ask yeah, you, you and I can, if we want to go to Nobu for sushi, we we're going to pay 25 bucks if we cancel our reservation. But somehow I can order 200 million of silicon and have zero penalty. It's very strange, <laughs> right? So if you get any whiff, that backlog's got air in it, 
Meaning, you know, when we get production equaling consumption, probably you're going to call some of them like, you know what, I'm probably only good for 100 million 18 months from now. I don't need the 200 million. And no, but there's and zero, zero, penalty, zero consequence. Zero penalty, right? And so I think um, that's a key. That's why I think backlog and book to bill are really important to watch. And if you get any whiff that some of the backlog is, is, is not real, I think that causes fear. Now, we've seen semis come in a lot here because I think people know they're over earning and they can see, you know, where we are six months from now. Um, and so now I think you're at the point where you're going to pick winners from losers a little bit more. As, as you can imagine, some of semiconductor business does not have uh, perishable pricing. So the cancellation, mm -hmm. yeah, they have inventory, but they don't have to cut the prices. So the Texas Instruments and analog devices of the world, their products really aren't perishable. Whereas, you know, some of the microprocessors that Intel and AMD make or graphic processors that, that NVIDIA and AMD make or, you know, obviously Micron with memory, like that stuff's super perishable, right? So if they right. make excess, the pricing comes down a lot. So you'll start getting a little, you know, discriminating between winners and losers a little bit more in that sector. But I, I think the broad tenor of your question, Barry, is backlog and book to bill are, are, are probably, you know, in the top 10 interesting more macro barometers for people to focus. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart that means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So from a macro perspective, one of the most interesting questions that comes up over and over again is, 
Why does it seem to take so long to reopen a semiconductor fab after a prolonged shutdown? You know, it's a number of issues, but you um, may have excess capacity in a factory, but it may take you several weeks to start building it and ramping it up. Um, you know, you may have um, tools that are idled. You may have tools that are not assembled yet, right? So you're, you can't really turn on a dime your production as rapidly as people think. Um, it is, is a lot more automated now than it used to be, though, in terms of um, – you know how it works inside a wafer fabrication. Not facility. people in bunny suits moving right. so I've been wafers a, yeah, around. Exactly. So you know you you're you're um, you and I are the same vintage. So you know I've been in the bunny suit in the old factories, and you know if you think about, they used to talk a lot about yield, and some of the yield was just like people's hair right. getting in the stuff or you know dropping dropping these things on the floor, um, and so that's triple a, ventilated. You're going yeah, through multiple clean right. rooms to get in. Exactly. The, now it's all you know synopsis and cadence and software and the stuff goes on the ceiling on tracks and comes down to the right machine. And I don't know if people can mentally imagine a fab, but a wafer fabrication facility, but they're like the size of a football field. Right. And there's $10 million machines as far as you can see in every direction. <laughs> so it's multiple, multiple billions of dollars. You know, I think, I think when I went to, it's been many years now since I covered semis, but when I went to one of their state-of-the-art fabs at Intel in Oregon many years ago, they had a sign out front saying they had more steel than two Eiffel Towers and enough cement to go to Portland from Portland to Seattle. Wow. Like, they're big facilities. So I think it's just not as easy to, like, quickly ramp up a bunch of the capacity as people think. So so that raises a question that um, a lot of people have been asking, which is how seriously can we reshore manufacturing facilities in the U.S.? Is that a real thing, or is that something that the politicians wave their hands about? Well, but it's so much money and it's so much cheaper overseas, it's not going to happen. I think there's a lot of things that could change. That deglobalization theme, I think, is real. If I think about what's kind of changed pre-COVID to now, probably the deglobalization theme you're talking about is, is is one of the bigger actual changes. You don't need to package and test every chip in Taiwan. There's some cheap areas here in the U.S., and I think that's structurally changed. I know Intel's announced some massive, was it, $100 billion CapEx plan over multiple years to build some stuff in Arizona and other places. So I think we're going to onshore more of the manufacturing Um and I think that part's real. Right. There's uh, a national security issue. Yeah, security as well. China make uh, our, the chips for our F-22 fighters is potentially. Yeah. And I think there's, yeah, I think there's also, um, there's been diminishing benefits to outsourcing it on the cost front as well. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe that doesn't mean, I don't, I don't know if that means Intel's going to be a good stock, right? Just because they're, you right. know, um, you know going to spend all that CapEx doesn't mean it'll be so, good, so good let's, shares. So let's but, talk yeah. about Intel. They've yeah. been criticized for a lack of innovation, for not keeping up with the NVIDIAs of the world. Or even with Apple and their M1 chips, I, I, by the way, footnote, I got a new iMac in December, and the old machine is two years old. The new one is like six times faster. It's insane the difference between the M1 chip and the solid state, you know, no spinning drives, nothing. Right. Um, So what happened to Intel? How did they seem to fall so far behind? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we looked at, I did a research note recently on um, capital spending and R&D, it's in sort of R&D intensity and capital spending intensity, meaning relative to sales, changes in that, what it means for subsequent returns. And our work shows that Intel's been one of the biggest destroyers of shareholder value of any company wow. in the last 20 years wow. because they spend, you know, tens and tens of billions on this stuff and it hasn't really made their stock go up. Right. So if you think about it- Has from, it helped their sales, their revenues? 
Uh, yes, but we don't really care. Like we're stock guys. Like I don't like you know I want to buy a stock that goes up. I don't really care if their revenue goes up and the stock doesn't. So the stock's gotten cheaper, right? Um, and they've lost share in major areas. So I I, I think that um, you know that that it it, it may be you know. I don't say fruitless, but it may not be a you know high return on the investment, but maybe it's just good for America. And there seems to be bipartisan support for that as well. So, so let's talk about a stock whose price has gone up. Probably the hottest semi for years now is NVIDIA. Tell us why their graphics engine is just yeah. kicking everybody they, else's they, butt. They did a lot of stuff right. I mean, I'm, look, I dropped coverage of uh, semiconductors you know a dozen you know more than 15 years ago actually january so, uh, january of seven so now you're as up to date yeah, as i am. yeah <laughs> you know and it, it's i'm like in the, i'm in like the danger zone of thinking i know stuff that's no longer relevant today which, on uh, dunning kruger presents yeah, yeah exactly adam parker on semiconductors yeah, so i could tell you about you know high school in 1987 also <laughs> uh but you know i i i think that some of us who have been around the block you know probably missed at least the first half of nvidia because we didn't trust the management team you know, huh. and uh, and I think you know a combination of lucky and brilliant. You know, not not all brilliant, but graphics and crypto, and they got into a bunch of other things that really right worked. space, and, right, right time, space. and so and, it's been a, it's know. been a monster. Now it's been reset a lot because the valuation was high. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think people realize that these businesses, back to my original comments, yeah, the slope has been upward, but they're also over earning at the same time, and so mm-hmm. that's why the stocks have come in so much. I think it's probably still a little bit too early. But I think as we get closer to the production line of consumption and the stock's correct, you know, maybe it's time to get in again. And, and the world needs semis. You can't really produce anything without them. So I'm not – I'm kind of, kind of a long-term bull, but kind of short to medium term, just feel like this correction needs to, you know, happen. So let's start talking about you sitting on the investment committee oh. at Morgan Stanley, which is about $2 trillion dollars. In client assets. I don't know if it was that when you were yeah, there. Yeah, I think when I was there, it was two. Who knows with this E-Trade thing? It might be three. I have no idea. Right. I haven't caught that's, up with it. That's yeah. a lot of wood. Tell us what it's like to be responsible for that much money. Um, Look, there was a seven-person committee. Everyone on there was... Hey, one-seventh of tr- $2 yeah. trillion dollars is still a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. A lot uh, of capital. Yeah, I don't know how much of that... You know, I felt responsible for. I was the I was the equity guy. There were bond experts. There were you know international experts and and you know alternatives experts. But you know, I, fortunately, I was there during a period where, you know, straight up. Yeah, I just sort of said, look, you know, you guys can own whatever you think makes sense, but I'll take twenty U.S. growth stocks and I'll meet you in five years, and basically that works. So um, <laughs> I don't. I, I can look back and say I generally gave good investment advice because. I just felt like we were in by the dip mode. You know, it was pretty clear that U.S. equities look better than other asset classes. I, look, I generally think that still, Barry, which is that, you know, I'm getting a two, two and a half percent net buyback plus dividend. I get, a, you know, some organic earnings growth of a few percent. So I think the U.S. equity market looks like a six to eight percent total return algorithm. Normal. That, that look, yeah, normal, and that looks a lot better than most of these other things. And and I I never really understood the case for owning. I mean, I got a little bit in trouble back in the day at Morgan Stanley when I would say stuff like Europe is great for vacation, but not for stocks. <laughs> uh, you know, Which yeah. has, by the way, turned out to be exactly totally. true I, for a decade. Yeah, and, and, and we, had a, we had a two-year period where it hasn't been good for vacation, but I think it will be again this summer. But I think generally that's been right. And so I, I don't, you know, um, I, I felt like it's important to um, hit on the, the importance of U.S. equities. But I, I don't really know. You know, today I think the problem would be different and more complex. I think you know recently you've seen in the news Fidelity say they're going to offer crypto for retirement plans, and there's other yeah, you know uh, there's other kind of diversifying kind of things happening. Sure. And I think alternatives people have a different view now than they did five six years ago. Meaning you know maybe people now realize that some of private equity was a levered 
uh, uh, rates call, and you know, so you know, the private markets have been a little bit more richly valued before they come public. You know, it's been some mm-hmm. evolution in the last five six years sure. since I've been doing that. But um, you know, generally, I think I felt responsible for making clear that U.S. equities had a pretty important and big place in the portfolio. And I think, as you know better than me, much better than me, how rich you are to start out with really <laughs> impacts the, the the proper allocation. Of course. The yeah. question is, are you trying to create wealth or preserve wealth? Right. And that makes a big yeah. difference. Huge. <laughs> so I want to get a sense of what it's like to be on a committee responsible, not for 2 or $3 billion, but for $7 trillion. Is it all 30,000-foot macro view, or does it get more granular? Do you dig into sectors, stocks? How, how, how specific does that committee get? I think for me, I've always been more about the industries, the sectors, the the, the, the microstructure of the market, and it was hard for me because they had to get had to get higher level. Because, as you're pointing out correctly, um, people were just trying to get the mix of equities and bonds correct, the mix of you know U.S. versus non-U.S. correct. Um, I don't remember how much of that money's qualified for alternatives, but you know that stuff obviously has a bit of a different flavor to it. So it was pretty high level stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not an economist, so um, I didn't really um, get into you know that. Um, there are definitely some other fixed income people who focused on that. So I think generally, you know, at least in the last decade, most people thought rates were going to back up and they've been wrong until the last six or nine months. Right. So, you know, they get there, there was sort of pretty easy to like equities over bonds. Yeah, say, say at the very least. So let's talk a little bit about trivariate. Yeah. Starting with, I love the name. Tell us what it means and how you came yeah, about it. It's totally a self-serving name. Um, so look, I was a number one ranked analyst, have a PhD in statistics, and then I did did strategy. So I, I feel like the three buckets of investing, the three variables of investing, um, you know, quant, fundamental, and macro. So when I started a, a hedge fund, um, I called it trivariate capital, just thinking that you know I'll go tell allocators that I'm kind of considering quantitative things and macro things and fundamental things as part of my investment discipline. And we ran money at, at trivariate capital for a while. It closed it down and converted it to a research firm um, in the middle of 2000, uh, 20, 2021 and um, just kept the name. I had a fancy logo. That looks amazing, so I didn't want to repay for a new uh, logo. But uh, yeah, no, just I think we're we're approaching equities from the lens of of you know systematic or quantitative, um, some fundamental work, and then and then macro. Macro is more about where are we and what to do about it. Meaning, where should we, where do we think we can pick stocks better or worse? Where should we be able to generate more alpha? Which parts of the market? You know, um, should we be able to do that right now based on the, the conditions that exist? So it's we're not doing macro from the standpoint of forecasting rates or dollar or oil, but more recognizing where we are and saying, okay, in this regime, we ought to be able to pick winners from losers very well within the industrial sector, but maybe not so well in durables or things like that. So it's we're looking at those three lenses to try to help, you know, people who care about equities make. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So, so let's talk about the concept of outsourced chief risk officer. Tell us a little bit about what you do um, in helping yeah. firms manage their risk profiles. So when I left Morgan Stanley, I left the sell side, I went to work at a large hedge fund, and part of my role there was to be much more analytically rigorous around risk management. Um, and then also diagnose trades to look for patterns of behavior and the like. So I brought that sort of risk framework into running my own hedge fund, and we have um, used that infrastructure now in the research role to help firms. So I think we signed, I don't know, 20-something non-disclosure agreements where firms, they send us their portfolio. We put it through our framework, and I think they view me as sort of like an outsourced chief risk officer where we'll talk to them through things that are not things they can get from the standard risk vendors, so things like... um, you know, idiosyncratic risk. Uh, so maybe they differ for your longs versus your shorts. Um, you know, so you, you you're a bottom stock picker, but your your longs are pretty macro, and your shorts are pretty company specific. Or, you know, uh, as you know, as you know, Barry, like if risk didn't change, anyone could do risk management. So most people know their growth value. They're large, small. They're you right. know. So we have like you know, in the last two or three years, think about what's what's changed. You know, we created a, a work from home basket and a reopening basket, and we look at every stock's correlation to uh, low quality work from home like Netflix or a high quality reopening or whatever. And we kind of see, are you offsides on your long short book on, on those things or even on the long versus the index or if you're long short only. Netflix, long airlines. Is or, that yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. At? Yeah. Or you, you can see if they're offsides because they may not realize they have um, that bet on as much as they do. Um, Me- so, meaning they're unaware of the correlations? They're un- or- yeah, maybe unaware of the correlations, maybe unaware that they've got wh- where the real risks are. So what mm-hmm. happens when you run a fund is, let's say you decide, all right, I'm a little bit nervous about my tech exposure a few months ago. Uh, yeah, they're expensive and more worried rates are going to rise, so I'm going to sell it. So I think in practice what happens is the CIO goes to some of the analysts or PMs and say, yo, give me your least two or three favorite tech names. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trim those out. Mm-hmm. right? And you trim them out, you sell 500, six, five, 600 pips of tech, and okay, great, I'm proactive, I got the call right. But it may not be that those names you trimmed were the risky ones, gotcha. right? So it's about so we think about it more from the risk standpoint as much as the exposure. Um, and there's a lot of so you know a lot of that goes in there. So I, when we do our work, it's a lot of you know every single name's exposure to uh, size, substance, style, dollar rates, spreads, oil, uh, momentum. Beta. So this is a lot, quality, lot more than just beta. This ownership. Is... Um, you know, uh, we look at the filing data from sixty hedge funds that we track that do deep fundamental research, and we say, does anybody here have high conviction in the name? Do they own three percent or more of their assets in the name? How does it differ from the broader population of funds? Is there good and bad crowding going on? I mean, it's a very you know kind of differentiated system to try to really help people understand you know what the true risks of their portfolio are. We we take the portfolio and we say, how did this act in the last ten downturns of ten percent or more? Where is it different today versus you know that, so maybe you have names that you think are defensive. You own Oracle and you own Walmart because you think they're defensive, but they get much more correlated in downturns than they look like in a steady state, or all those kind of things that try to really help people think through the risks of their portfolio. So, you know, I think we're good at that. We do a lot of like hedge baskets. So you got a big long position, you want to take out some of the, 
you know, kind of uh, macro risk of it so we can create a basket to help you hedge it. So we do a lot of that kind of risk work to help funds think through. Um, and, and I think for us, it's great because I think people say, all right, well, I can, you know, I can hire, hire Trivariate and um, they can, you know, help me once a quarter think through this stuff or at big inflections and I don't need to, um, you know, build a team here to do do that same thing. Hmm. Really interesting. So it's I'm, fun work too. I, I, I was going to ask, you know, I know back in the days when you were at Morgan Stanley, you were traveling more than half the year, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, I was away for two days, and I'm completely yeah. disoriented, and <laughs> it takes a while to get my right. feet under me again. I'm curious if you find now that you're not doing that sort of traveling, yeah. do you have the time to step back and think deep thoughts and really <laughs> organize how you're looking at the world, not from airports and hotels? How does that affect how you think? So, yeah. Probably the smartest person I ever worked with was a guy named Marty Leibowitz, who, Marty's an amazing human being in his early to mid-80s, is the most published person in the history of financial journals, um, you know, worked, I think, with uh, Mr. Bloomberg at Salmon back in the day, and, mm-hmm. and so just very connected and brilliant guy, and I think his wife is a brain scientist, and <laughs> we, we went to dinner together with our wives, and I told his wife at dinner that I spend five to ten minutes a day thinking, this is when I worked at Morgan Stanley, and she almost started crying about depressed of a, of a level of thinking I was able to right. do. And so all the thinking I had to do was 5.30 in the morning to 7 in the morning and then Not 7 enough. at night on and on the weekends, which was fine. But it wasn't, you know, a it, system. It's an amazing firm, but you know, it's traveling everywhere and, and you know, getting fat and, you know, just, you know, all that stuff. So um, I, I think it's freeing from the standpoint of. You know, a lot of that was just, you know, you're flying to conferences all around the world and, and um, it's a lot of airplane time. I'm traveling some now, but it's definitely more like one week a month, you know, five, six um, you know, days a year to see, you know, clients and potential clients. And I find that great because you want the human connection. Obviously, I'm glad the world's reopening such right. that people are doing in-person meetings. Um, so you want to you want to do meetings to talk to investors. What you don't want to do is, you know, fly to Jakarta for one one hour speech on U.S. equities. Turn around and fly. Yeah, fly, back. turn on, fly back or so, whatever. Yeah. So I think I think the answer to your question is, um, you know, I'm thinking more. I'm talking to investors more often, and I'm doing less, you know, kind of push, meaning presentation of my, you know, my material. So a lot of those conferences, Barry, were um, sector conferences. We got a TMT conference in San Francisco. The first thing in the conference will be I talk about U.S. equities, my view of tech, and the analyst will pitch their ideas, and then I move on, right? So there's no push like that now. I'll write about tech because there's a big sell-off, and I want to evaluate what signals and stocks work after the sell-off, or you know, it's it's margin expansion and cash flow, or I'll, I'll look at Fang M as a as a risk factor and say, you know, should you really deviate from that, or where should you? So we'll do it where it's timely and relevant, not just because there's a conference every March in Timbuktu but, or whatever. But it's fascinating that your job essentially is to think at both places. But you could be the smartest guy in the world if you're constantly running. You don't have yeah, a moment to, to. Yeah, you don't. But they, look, in fairness, I had like nine people in New York and five people in India on my team when I was at Morgan Stanley, and we we do not. You know, we're not doing that now. It, it's yeah. not. It's yeah. not for lack of brain power. Yeah. it's you as the it's my own guy. personal time. Yeah, it's my own personal segmentation. But the team had a lot of smart people working hard at Morgan Stanley, and I, you know, <laughs> we've got we've got uh, you know. You know, five total people at Trivariate, so we're keeping it tight, and um, and 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 that's because the gating factor is my time, and I want to be you know um, involved in what we're writing and doing. So For sure, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the market today. Sure. Everything more or less seemed to have peaked back in October of 2021, and people are freaking out about how this market is a bear and how terrible it is. 
what are we eight nine ten percent from from the peak that that's barely a drawdown what, what's going on in u.s equities today yeah, I, I think that the, the sentiment feels worse because a lot of people over-indexed toward growth in the previous few years, and a lot of the growth stocks are down 40, 50, 60, 70 percent if you're in biotech or software. So I think the headline number is probably less painful than some of the underlying carnage, and I think that explains that disconnect between your high-level point and sentiment. Generally, I think I would describe the last six months as huge change in the perception about interest rates into a growth scare, and then we got a war. So that's probably the, the, the cocktail that, that sort of caused the reset. Um, my own personal opinion um, is that the perception about rates has gotten too hawkish and that they're unlikely to raise rates um, as much as, as is now in the price. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't know that for sure. But I only say that because uh, as we talk about semiconductors and other parts of the market, it's unclear to me that raising rates will um, – expedite any of the supply demand imbalances and cause, you know, if you have a wheat shortage, I don't think you want to crush demand for wheat to the point you get equilibrium. I think you're just going to have to live, live with wheat pricing, gaining share from something else, mm -hmm. right? So um, I'm not sure the Fed, I've taken the view that the Fed are the smart ones, and so therefore they're not going to purposely create a recession. Uh, that, yeah. that seems to be coming more and more of a consensus. And yeah. I, I thought it was an outlier view. Hey, the Fed wants to get off zero and sort of normalize rates. But do we really think they're going to tighten until there's a recession in order to fight inflation that is not um, yeah. interest rate based? And I know you're not yeah. an economist. Right. Uh, neither am I. It, but, seems it seems illogical that they do that. So right? I, I mean, how, I mean, how is raising rates going to affect... Wheat shortages, semiconductor semiconductors, shortages, temporary, temporary labor right. problems that you can't clean hotels, all those things. So I, I don't think it will, and I think they'll realize that and move a little bit more gingerly on the path. And and so the longer, maybe the path will be, you know, last longer, which is which is fine. I, I think the U.S. consumers in good shape. We did a lot of research on that this year. Um, I think the earnings households season, are strong, right? Yeah, They're the earnings strong. season in April. If you really look at bank earnings and the comments from them, Master Trust credit card data. 30-day uh, delinquencies went down. 90-day delinquencies are at an all-time low. Uh, retail sales, consumer confidence, wages, um, jobs, everything looks fairly good for the consumer. So I, I'm not saying it, it couldn't slow materially in six months with higher you know, oil at the pump and the like, but I, I still see the U.S. consumer in pretty good shape. And so underneath that, for me, like what I focus on is, all right, what's what's like a long and what's a short? Wow, like growth staples are incredibly expensive and you know, yet, you know, like the value discretionary stocks look cheap. And so maybe I can long some and short the others or, you know, so I'm, I think there's a lot, like I'm excited about the long short opportunity within the equity market, um, independent of what the Fed does here. But I just, if you ask me like what, what I think is like, where there's the most excess capacity in the financial industry, in an industry with massive excess capacity in every single area of it. I would say the number of people who watch the Fed and memorize everything they do and have no idea what they're actually going to do and are never right, it's that that's where the excess capacity exists. Short Fed watchers. Oh my God, I would short, I would short hockey rinks of Fed, <laughs> hockey rinks of Fed watchers. I, I'm with you on that. So so let's talk about a couple of sectors. Yeah. Uh, oil and gas been a huge outperformer. Yeah. Does this continue? Where what do you look yeah. at? How do you evaluate oil and gas when you have the wild card of the war? And the the big booming reopening. Fortunately for us, you know, and and uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not like trying to break my own arm, patting myself on the back. But we had that's been our biggest, 
you know, call since we started the firm a year ago is to be it's over been a great at, call. under energy. Yeah, and that, that's why I asked you that. Question. Thanks, man. I mean, I can I can only hit the EFIS pitch. Um, <laughs> you start start spinning it with me, and I'll I'll be in trouble. No, you know, I, I, for me, look, I think it's really hard to forecast oil. So I, I, what I would back up and say, what attracted me to it was what I call a triple crown of quant. Upward earnings revisions, positive price momentum, cheap valuation versus history. So I have those three. You start digging in and you say, okay, well, um, let's go talk about it with investors, right? And investors gave me two sources of pushback, right? One is, um, hey, uh, they don't say it this way, but hey, Adam, like the specter of us gathering assets under this thing called ESG is far too great for us to, you know, risk you know, Even whatever, on the alpha. buy side, really? Yeah, the bigger firms, I think that's the case. Huh. And then, um, and there's a few of those that, that that might be the case for. And then the second group, you know, I'm, I'm going to say is more in the, hey, Adam, the terminal value of oil is zero. And that's the part where I really start getting, um, you know, kind so of So they're aggressive. unfamiliar with material science and plastics. There, well, there's, just, an old, there's an old joke about the Saudi prince who said to the American oil company, I can't believe you guys burn this stuff. Yeah. Totally. So um, I'm smiling because, you know, as I push the thesis, I think a lot of people just say, look, I, look, I don't disagree that as you get, I think peak oil demand from the experts, it looks like 2032, something plus or minus, sure. right? 16% of new vehicle sales are either electric or hybrid. The install base is 8%. Cars are born and then they die. There's no in-between states. So you can't, it's a lot of new car sales you need and to get the install base. today last a decade or 12 years yeah. or whatever, right? So... I don't see any way peak oil demand isn't in you know in the in the next ten years, okay? And and remember, you, you know where we live in our cozy um, you know lives here, but five hundred million Indians still defecate in the street, and three billion people don't have air conditioning. And like, it's not like when it's hot out, you um, and you've had experienced air conditioning, you decide, yeah, for the sake of humankind, I'm not going to AC my place. Like, so the demand is going to be longer <laughs> tail than people think, as right. you know, toilets are good, and AC is good, and Wi-Fi is good, and electricity is good, and so like oil consumption, like the people who have been the most protesting, you know, the terminal value of zero argument or people who like fly private and have 19 houses, like their own oil footprint's massive. So I just, I don't understand where that disconnect is. And I, I sure, maybe there's like a pharmaceutical like patent cliff where I pay lower multiples for oil as I get five years away from that peak mm -hmm. or whatever. I get how stocks work, but it seems awfully early if there's ENPs with 25% free cash flow yield to get too negative. So I started getting aware it's sentiments negative. Um, you know, and which is bullish as hell. Bullish, really bullish. And if you look at how a lot of um, funds work, we did a note last year in June, twenty one, um, called ESG ETFs, forty nine percent QQQ, forty nine percent XPS, SPX, two percent ESG. So the the idea was these things are closet triple Qs. Now that energy has beaten the Qs by 50% plus in the last right. six months, we've heard a lot of firms say, well, we're thinking about switching from a sustainability level to buy a stock to a change in sustainability score, meaning if they're improving on the sustainability front, right. maybe we can buy it. Because you can't handle, everyone's cool to buy ESG stocks when they're outperforming because they're on the Qs, sure. but when they lag by 50, it's less cool. Right, so I, I think you could have a flows thing that's positive for this group also, um, and I know a lot of smart people directly investing in resources and the like. You throw this Ukraine thing on, I'd say the one the one thing, and 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 you mentioned it earlier, and I agree with it. I I can't help but say you know, I don't. I'm talking about markets when there's massive and horrible human implications, and I, I, I it's almost like you feel awful doing that, but right. you have that's to you have to mentally separate <clears throat> for this and and just say okay, well. Sure, if we get any announcement of a ceasefire or that Ukraine's winning, uh, oil stocks are going to go down 10, 15% in a minute, sure. right? We get that. 
But I think I'm more in the buy the dip mode, believing that demand growth will see supply growth sentiments negative. They're cheap, upper revisions, positive momentum than I am. It's the end of the it's the end of the day. So I, I think it's a pretty bullish setup for a couple year view, and it's not just a short term trade. Hmm. So so you mentioned something that I'm kind of fascinated about. There's been a lot of pushback on ESG, and there's certainly been a lot of pushback on uh, low carbon. Here's my beef with the low carbon portfolio. Wait, you're going to take the S&P 500 and you're going to remove all the carbon producers, but you're going to still in, invest in all the carbon consumers. It's the demand that's leading to these people producing carbon. How how does it make rational sense? Well, we're not going to buy oil or natural gas or coal companies, but we will buy all the companies that consume those products. Yeah, it's even more than that. I, I hear you. And it's even more than that, which is the solar and wind companies consume more energy um, than anything else, right? I mean, just in, the plastic. way? The plastics required to make the wind turbines and move them around and the, you know, producing. Yeah, but the that's sun. true for any new factory you generate. Right, right. Coal, even a coal fired. Right. You know, it takes X number of years before they're net energy neutral. Right. I, I don't know if, um, if, you know, it makes sense from the planet's perspective to long solar and, and wind and short energy as a, as a, you know, kind investment of, strategy. Yeah, investment strategy. I don't think that makes any sense, to mm -hmm. be honest with you. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So There's a fascinating article in this week's Business Week about uh, the rise of um, wind generation throughout all these su- supposedly red states because when you look at Oklahoma and Texas and you look at the Midwest where there's a ton of natural and fairly consistent geothermal movement, the wind at on all this farmland, right. the the wind farms are giant money makers for these landowners. Right. It it's just uh, you know just out of left. Field. I don't know if it is for the people who produce the actual turbines and move them there though. You know. You would think GE Capital, who was funding these, and GE Wind Power, that should be a giant home run business, and yet it doesn't seem to be. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't. I think the tenor of your question, I agree with, which is. Um, you know, and it's kind of my point too, which is I just don't think you can destroy demand, right? right. Like you know, like my point about air conditioning or yeah, you know, look at the entire uh, movement to the Sun Belt. That's because of air conditioning. But there's no air conditioning, it, and there's no hundreds and there's hundreds of millions of people on Earth like this. You know, yeah. you know, it turns out that like a toilet's better than a non-toilet. Uh, it turns out that plumbing. turns Would out a BMW is better than a rickshaw, and I mean, just go down the line. So like, I don't, I don't. So it's going to take a long time to destroy man, demand for oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so peak oil, you, it's you at least ten years from now, at and the so, very least, and yeah. maybe twenty years. From yeah. Now. yeah, and like maybe longer than Facebook exists, or like, <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, because there'll be something else cool. I'm not, you know, I'm not making a fundamental short thesis on Facebook. I'm just saying, like, you know, t- people talk about the terminal value for oil, so I won't own the stocks. I'm like, the terminal value for Facebook is probably oil will last longer than Facebook. I would bet. Interesting, really interesting. Uh, last question before we get to our favorite questions. <laughs> we are about to ramp up earnings season. How does earnings season play into the sort of research you do? How do your clients look at it? Um, and how do you incorporate new data from you yeah. know the, the key companies it, into your models? Look, it's massive. So what we do is every day for the top 3,000 U.S. equities, we download about 500 pieces of information and compute about 500 more, and then we store that every day back for 25-plus years. So anytime somebody asks us a question, we can empirically test the distribution of subsequent returns. So, hey, what happens when this happens? We go look and study it. So earnings is, is huge for us because we're getting balance sheet, income statement, cash flow, you know, ratings changes, the analyst <laughs> downgrades, you know, insider buying and selling, trends transactions holding there's tons of stuff that's happening every day um and so it changes you know relative valuations and growth expectations and and the like so for us that's huge um it also uh, we have quantitative models that predict subsequent stock performance and the quant models use and ingest a lot of this data to inform the forecast so you know my view of systematic stuff has always been um that i romanticize something about the reported pnl of the company matters to its ultimate value for the listeners i think 30% of all money traded is two to five day holding period on price and liquidity. So it's, yeah. So it's not, you know, um, a 10 K's and Q's being processed for us. That's a big part of what we do. Um, you know, income statement, cash flow, balance sheet, et cetera. That sounds like an inefficiency that a third of the market isn't paying attention to the fundamentals. 
Well, yeah, I, th I think it's even more than that. That's just two to five day holding period. I think the guys who are doing microsecond and stuff are a decent chunk of volume too. Right. So I, I'm not saying there aren't plenty of really successful people to do that. I've just personally never been intellectually interested in that. And I think what I've learned so far is that you're like going to probably be better at something you like doing than you don't. And so I just, it doesn't really appeal to me to do that. I think you can only compete when you have the tech, you know, you need billions of dollars of, of tech to be able to compete in the microsecond space. And I think two to five day holding, it's just price liquidity, right? Access to borrow, access to mm -hmm. risk, anonymity, other stuff that really isn't about what, what we do. What we do is try to find big dislocations and opportunities like energy or uh, metals or, you know, when we go into each sector or industry, where do we see, you know, uh, interesting long short opportunities. So that that has to come from earnings season and the updates there. And I think one of the things I've learned is like you don't anchor, right? Like you, you get like we talked about Netflix. Like mm -hmm. yeah, they they told you the business model's changing. Like that's not nothing. Now, maybe the stock's down too much. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. The fundamental analysis you know can decide. But what I know is that it changed. So let's stay with that again, and let's look at technology where there is some dislocations. Yeah. We're recording this before Apple reports, before Microsoft reports. So how do you look at the entire sector? Is it uniform, or can you really segment it? Winners, losers, riskier, valuation. What's yeah. the spectrum like in that space, which has been clearly driving the market for the past decade. So look, we're more in the, um, you know, kind of maybe bucketing it too much. But when you think about earnings season, a lot of things happen, okay? Did they beat on earnings? Did they beat on margins? Did they beat on revenue? Did they guide to a change in earnings, margins, and revenue? Did the stock T plus one, T plus three go up or down relative to the market, relative to the peer group? Um, did the implied guidance change? Because maybe they beat the quarter, didn't change the annual guidance, but the implied guidance is different, right? So like, there's like 38 things that happen they report, whether you realize it or not. You know, Bloomberg's great at, you know, here's the, you know, what happened on revenue versus what the consensus they beat or not. But like, there's there's 18 things underneath that that happened. What about the cash flow versus the earnings? Was there a disconnect? Was it an accrual? Was it CapEx? Was it inventory? Was it intangible? You know, like, it's it's like an orgasmic amount of data that's coming in that you're just trying to figure out what's discounted and what isn't. So, like, I, to me, you know, um, I I think that that's where the, the, the data will differentiate between, you know, um, all the all the big tech companies. Um, and then you can also pick up other trends that are happening. Like, wait a second. So when I, when I look recently, like transportation data is really rolled over, but industrial activity looks high. That's interesting, right? Like I'm not paying as much now for truckloads and van loads. Okay, so that's new. Uh, the bank the bank earnings comes in. Master trust data comes in. You know, c consumer behavior comes in. Uh, consumer demand commentary comes in. Then you get the tech. Well, there's a lot of M&A happening. It's come, it seems like a lot of kind of 5, 10, 15 billion market cap software companies now look attractive to the private markets. And what's Thomas Bravo doing? Or what's these guys? Well, who are they buying? And wait a minute, now a bunch of companies are below, come down a lot. What about you know, biotech? Is there anything coming out of the pipeline there? Because those are at an all-time low on price to sales, and maybe there's innovation on sale. Like, there's a lot of trends that happen in every sector during earnings that I think are interesting. Healthcare services, uh, the costs are going up. What's going on there? Because all I know is, um, you know, I, I pay United Health like seven percent more every single every year, no year, matter what happens. Right. right. So like you, seven, I, I, yeah. nine, and eleven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, that the single most gangster company I interact with is United Health, uh, which they, people don't realize is one of the biggest companies in the country. Plot UNH. Uh, equity GP on your Bloomberg terminal. This and is it's shocking, right? Yeah, bottom left to upper right. And one of my goals in life is to own enough UNH stock that it can offset the price increases they take on me and my employees each year <laughs> right. to get the perfect hedge. Because, um, like, door number one is, hey, Adam, we're going to raise you. You pay us twenty grand now, and then we won't raise everyone in your in your employees for a year. And door number two is, we're just going to raise all your employees. 
That's it. There's no three of like you get a car. You get a car. <laughs> right. But my point is, and that's you know, it's kind of joking aside. Like you want to look for pricing power. Like one of the biggest investment debates right now is which companies are going to have gross margin expansion six months from now, and which aren't, and is the gross margin expectation achievable or not? So you get a lot of data points on where are we with logistics, labor, uh, you know, wages. Where are we with um, you know input costs, oil, commodities, etc. Who's got the pricing power? Who doesn't? You know, I, I think another interesting trend in earnings Barry is like your your employee base. Is it U.S. or non-U.S.? Because most of the companies are telling you, and it's been subtle and not written about enough that all the wage issues are in the US. Yes. Right? So maybe that US non-US labor mix is going to matter for your margin profile. And so to me there's just, you know, so many things during earnings that are um kind of trends that you can pick up on and there'll be at least 10 or 12 things that happen in, you know, kind of mid-April through mid-May that update you on uh, and, and increase or decrease your confidence on SME achievability um, broadly and then within each industry going forward. So like when I give investment advice, a lot of it is about relative estimate achievability six months from now. So I think energy, you know, okay, that's somewhat easier. Like the correlation between the change in the oil price and the change in the earnings of the net income of the energy sector is mm -hmm. 0.8. So like it's, it's <laughs> if oil goes higher, like they're going to make more money. But there's more subtle things. Like we've been a little bit cautious on industrial machinery and capital goods because the estimates hockey stick in the second half of the year, we saw the most down revisions of any sector in the market in industrials in Q1, but the stocks didn't really underperform that much. So there seems to be this disconnect, you know, transportation's rolling over. So I'm trying to figure out like, why do I have really high incremental margin expectations embedded in the industrial sector stocks, yet? you know, there's a bit of a slowdown and margins have already recovered. So th to me, those are the kind of dislocations that you get, you should, if you're being intellectually honest, get increased or decreased conviction on during earnings. So you mentioned intangibles. Um, your old shop, uh, Morgan Stanley, has a division called Counterpoint. Michael Mobison's the head of research there. He did a really interesting piece on intangibles and essentially technology uh, holdings and how much much of the investment community has undervalued intangibles like software, algorithms, brands, go down the list, copyright, patents, whatever, and that everybody has been looking at tech as overvalued for a decade. The market seems to have disagreed with that assessment. How do you view intangibles in that space? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting question. Um, I'll answer it purely quantitatively, um, which is... Um, identifying longs and identifying shorts use different signals. If I think about what people have been asking me the most in the last year, people will often say, hey, you know, Barry, they'll say, I want to buy compounders. I want a business that compounds. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of research and we do a lot of kind of frameworks like this at Trivariate where we'll say, okay, well, what is a compounder? Let's look at businesses with consistent gross margin expansion, consistent net income expansion, consistent earnings growth, consistent upward revisions, consistent price momentum. We'll take a bunch of signals and say, which is associated with the best subsequent stock performance? And the answer was gross margin expansion. Okay, so we offer a screen and people can buy a basket of compounders that have consistent gross margin expansion and forecasted gross margin expansion going forward. It seems really important in this regime because of inflation and what we talked about. But on the short side, it, it isn't margin contraction. The, the, the question people were asking me last year was the inverse of compounder was, I want to short a melting ice cube. That seems to be the cool Wall Street <laughs> phrase, well, short melting ice cubes, right? I want a long compounders and short melting ice cubes. So we did a note, what, what the heck is a melting ice cube? And what's interesting is that the, the, the thing that um, mattered the most, the two things that mattered the most were accruals, which would be disconnects between earnings and cash flow, which were driven by capex, inventory, or, or intangibles. So I'm getting to your intangible question. Mm -hmm. Or bad price momentum, meaning actually the stock was just simply bad uh, versus its industry peers. So the short ideas were 
Businesses with the biggest intangible accruals in the last three quarters that also relatively underperformed their peers. That, if you plotted that line versus the S&P, it materially lagged. And if you added on share loss and margin contraction, it didn't even help. So I think the fundamental huh. analysts need to focus on this the issue of whether the intangibles, capex and inventory are obviously big, but the intangibles are are positive or not. My suspicion from Obison's work is that there's some alpha spread in that group. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, and um, I haven't seen I haven't seen that work, but I know he's a incredibly smart guy. So, um, but I, I'd say I think when I'm looking for short ideas, I would start with do they have a high accrual and as a stock acted bad. So you're describing hot stocks that have rolled over. Yeah, in some ways, in some ways, um, either hot that have rolled over, or they had a business model change where they had to increase their capex. They built inventory in advance of recovery. They did a deal, and it's uncertain about what the intangibles they acquired are, something like that. Huh? Really fast. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Fascinating. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Okay. Starting with, and we talked about Netflix before, hey, we're past two years, everybody's been streaming, all sorts of stuff. Tell us what's been 
keeping you entertained. Oh boy, yeah, I'm I'm probably you know um, in in the bottom you know decile of culturally savvy pe- people that you'll interview. I actually watched the David Rubenstein show on Bloomberg. I like that show. <laughs> um, that counts. To I think me, it's, it's amazing. It, I think as long as it keeps. I think he's. I think he's amazing. I think that show is incredible. We leave. Um, we leave our TV on on Bloomberg TV in our office, and um, you know uh, when that he comes. Gets- Unbelievable guest. Yeah, smart quiz and questions, incredible. And, and his perspective is so unique because awesome. he's walked in their shoes. He he yeah. he's run a multi-billion-dollar yeah. company. Not a lot of interviewers bring that. To yeah, the table. yeah, ask great questions. So I, I I like I like that. I, in terms of podcasts, you know, uh, obviously yours is incredible. But stop, uh, yeah, stop. but but I but I think the um, truth is I'm not I'm, I'm more of a hodgepodge. Of people refer me stuff. You know, I I interviewed the Freakonomics guys before. I like them. So once in a while, something that they say I think is interesting. Dubner, Dubner, and Levitt. Levitt. Yeah, so they're interesting guys. So it it mixed, but I'm not really a um, consistent guy, and I'm definitely not a streamer. Uh, but I am. Um, if I look at the Parker household, we probably pay twelve different uh, streaming services. So um, I'm 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 a, I'm a revenue source, but I'm um, a high return on revenue for those. That, uh, that's research, though. You gotta yeah. you can you can write yeah. that off. Yeah, we gotta start fun. cutting something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so t- apparently, lots of other folks uh, have thought the same thing, and we've seen that reflected in quite a few. Stories, yeah, yeah, exactly. To say the least. Tell us about your mentors who helped shape your career. Yeah, so at Bernstein again, I, I think all of them came from Bernstein originally. Honestly, so some of the original analysts there, so people who followed Bernstein in the '90s and early 2000s, would know some of the the, the minds there. But there's there's so many of them. But you know, um, people that I keep in touch with still, uh, some of whom are uh, still working on uh, you know on the street. So um, you know. So I'd say, you know, probably Marty Leibovitz and Morgan Stanley and then Lisa Shallot and Mark Mayer and Jonathan Gray, and who's deceased, but was probably the greatest analyst of all time. And really? yeah, existing analysts there as well. So there's just so many mentors I have, people who taught me that it's effort, it's enthusiasm, it's creativity, you know, um, and it's a combination of analytics and communication. And, you know, I can't imagine a more interesting job than, you know, Somebody told me once you always want to be talking to people in their 30s because they're not they're not so young that they're annoying to talk to and they're not so old that technology and cool stuff has passed them by and I think about you know, the the job job I have now I'm in I'm in my early 50s and I think yeah I want to do this for the next 25 or 30 years like I want to write interesting research and I want to talk to smart cool people about it and a lot of them are in their 30s and 40s and that'll be that'll be an amazing place to spend the rest of my life doing so it's can it's, I tell you yeah. it's a hundred percent true yeah. you know my shop you know the yeah. guys in my yeah. office it. it like I am sort of between the Gen X and the boomers. I have a foot in each camp and the millennials and the generation, the Gen Ys, they're absolutely cutting edge hip. They know everything that's going on. And I just want to avoid that whole okay boomer sort of thing. Right. And uh, it's absolutely true. Look, you know, sometimes experience is anti-correlated with success, right? Like you sit there, like I mentioned on NVIDIA before, like, I admit, like I admit, I would have missed the first half of Nvidia's appreciation because I was I I was encumbered by irrelevant knowledge. Right, experts right. are yeah. experts it, in the way the world used to be. Right, and so I think you know I, I see that all the time because a lot of people who are negative on the stock market are using Schiller PA or some Grantham view or <laughs> stuff. You know, something that that was How's made your sense. Cape in, doing Cape, and that made sense in the eighties, right? When eight of the ten biggest equities were energy, and and you know capital intensity was higher. And now you look at it, and you're like, wait a minute, forty five percent of all companies don't even have any inventory dollars. Capital intensity is an all time low for small and micro cap. Like Fang M is the it matters not not you know. Um, you know, mobile or, or whatever. So it's like a totally different business. So like to say we're going to mean revert back to something from 40 right. years ago is just you're encumbered by knowledge that's not relevant. Right. And I think the 30s and 40s 
crew is kind of right optimization on the curve. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be like hanging out with those people and, and what better job than it would be to, to do what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what was an Adam Smith book. It's talking about, um, uh, the new, uh, Adam Smith, not the original one about <laughs> all these funds that would hire young guns as traders because the guys who had the capital and the experience knew they couldn't buy the stuff the young guns were buying and would have missed the opportunity, but you need some adult supervision overseeing them. I, I don't remember if it was the money game or one of the books right. like that. But that's why risk management and alpha generation are different, right? Like the CIO's mm-hmm. job and often is just some risk management. Like, right. you know, what can I tolerate? What have I experienced before? Maybe some of these guys don't haven't seen a cycle. You know, maybe they haven't seen rates go up or stuff like that. So I need to have, you know, some, maybe, maybe they don't realize that, you know, following a financial crisis, you don't short highly shorted stocks because they, they can get squeezed or whatever. Right. Like stuff that, you know, some of us were writing about way before January of 21 because we knew that that was a risk. Because we saw that, right? saw that after the yeah. financial crisis, right? So I think that that, but you you don't want to be, um, you know, the, the 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 intractable guy who doesn't adapt. And I think these guys help you. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. You're absolutely absolutely right on that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites? What are you reading right now? Right now, I've got two books on the nightstand. I've got um, Maria Ivanovich's book, you know, Lessons from the Edge. So she was the U.S. ambassador to the Ukraine had an incredibly interesting career. Her her books. I'm only about halfway through it, but it's crazy. Her life is crazy, um, and obviously, her. I haven't gotten to the part of the book where the Trump induced exit happens yet, but incredible experience. You know, I always wondered what these foreign policy people do. So amazing. Stuff. Yeah, she's incredible. And then uh, somebody gave me the All In book by Billie Jean King, and I'm definitely oh, really? going to read it. Um, you know, she's had an incredibly interesting life also. So I've got a, a stack, and I roll through. I I am one of those people who, um, you know probably needs to sleep a little bit more and so um i try to read to uh you know um get drowsy go to a little melatonin yeah kind of (laughs) by the way if you if you like the billy jean king book someone recommended the andre agassi book called open and it's absolutely fascinating yeah yeah i read one of his uh originally years ago but um i didn't even know he had another one out yeah Yeah. it's his um it's really his life story okay yeah biography yeah um what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in investment, finance, becoming an analyst? What advice would you give them? Yeah, I guess uh, the two things would be, you know, you know, assuming that they weren't born on, you know, third base or that they had to like organically earn it. I'd say one would be um, you need to differentiate your skill base and the best way to do this is through computer science. So you need to program. All of the work we do, Barry, is in Python, all of it, you know, you mentioned that you have some cool iMac that works, but I don't care because all our, our, we only use dummy terminals, all the computer storage is on Azure. Like we don't really care. Um, your ability, like the days of like, you know, reading Ks and like writing up a paragraph um, are, I don't want to say they're over, but like you can process information much more quickly with sure. code. So like, I think you need to have computer science skills now and I would encourage people to, you know, get some skills in Python or R or, or you know, um, you know, kind of database work because that's, I think, a growth industry and, um, you know, analytics and data are being, you know, important considerations in every major industry and and, and I think in, in Wall Street in particular. So one, computer science. And two, like I've always been, people ask me all the time, what should I do with my career? What advice do you have? And, you know, I, look, I, I always encourage people to get more education because I think you can prove, um, demographically that the distribution of people who get more education have more wealth 
right over time. And I think it's probably more differentiating. I know that if I didn't have a PhD in statistics, I wouldn't have gotten the jobs that I, I had at Bernstein, the promotion at Morgan Stanley, et cetera. And so for me, it's been huge. And my dad has a PhD from MIT and he kind of told me, Adam, like you get the PhD and then the bear case is you're, you know, you're one of the most uh, popular professors at the University of Michigan or something like, you you know, <laughs> so like that's the bear case and that's a pretty darn good bear case. Yeah. So I encourage the young guys every time, get more education, statistics, data science, computer science, something that is a differentiating skill because, you know, just being like a basic MBA who's like, I like to pick stocks and I can read K's and Q's. Like, I don't think that's as a differentiating of a skill. Um, and, and so I think if you can process information and, and then you'll, there's a bit of a, you know, um, I, I, I should look it up, but how many people get a PhD in statistics every year in the country? There's a couple hundred, a few hundred. So it's not That's like, all it is. Yeah, That's amazing. I, I don't imagine know. it's much more. I mean, every major department has a few each year, right? So I don't like huh. do the math. If there's 100 real departments, there's a few each year. I don't know, 500. It's not. If, it's, only, if yeah. only I had access to a statistician. <laughs> yeah, you do. We'll, we'll sell you our research at Real. No problem. <laughs> and, and our final question, <laughs> what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 30 or so years ago when you were first getting started. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so much, right? Because I published two pieces of research for 18 years. <laughs> and we've started studying and learned a lot. But I guess holistically, I'd say it's a very competitive business with a lot of incredibly smart people. And it's very humbling. So this idea that you know, you're used to being smarter than people because you got an A in math in high school and you're the smartest kid in your class. Like everybody's smart and everybody works hard. And so um, you have to have a you know, a differentiated, um, you know, way of thinking about the world, I think. So, I, you know, I I could have picked an easier industry to compete in for sure. <laughs> to but, say the very yeah, least. Yeah. Adam, thank you for being so generous with your time. This really has been a yeah. lot of fun. We have been speaking with Adam Parker. He is the founder and CEO of Trivariate Research. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 400 or so we've done over the past eight years. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. We love your feedback and suggestions. Write us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps us put these conversations together each week. Mohamed Rumawi is my audio engineer. Paris Wald is my producer. Sean Russo is my director of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.